Welcome back to Speaking to Stacy, a podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell, and I can't wait to share this amazing conversation with you. It's loaded with information you can implement regardless of your profession. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. This week, my guest is former professional rugby player Nick Costa. If you stick around to the end of the show, you'll learn how leaders build credibility within their teams. Nick and I also discuss how to improve performances in sports and how that translates to business, the impact great leaders can have on an organization, and why you need to be intentional about the way you frame your reality. So without any further ado, let's get into the show. Right, cool. And we're recording. Nick, how's it? Welcome to the show. Hi, Stace. Yeah, great to great to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a been a while, and I think this uh, talk has been a long time in the making. We've had to put it off a couple of times. Yeah, sorry, man. Young young kids, uh, young kids uh, cause uh, cause havoc. So uh, it's difficult to, no to plan anything. No worries, no worries. And just, I didn't even realize you actually had two kids. I knew, I, I knew you had the first one. How old are the? Are you? Are there two girls? Yeah, two girls. Uh, the older one is, is uh, turning five soon, um, and then wow. the youngest is uh, is ten months. And uh, yes, okay. we we had we sort of waited a little bit between the two because um, I actually had the first one as I was transitioning out of rugby. Despite promising myself I won't have a kid as I transition out, <laughs> because obviously that transition is tough enough as it is. Uh, she yeah. she was born a month after I finished. Um, and I think that that made things quite difficult um, through that transition, you know, with changing uh, careers and, you know, obviously your income level drops quite a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, so we just waited until we were out of the woods a little bit before we um, before we carried on carried on with more. And I think we've decided we're going to shut up shop now and, uh, and <laughs> be, ha- be happy with two. I think we've had it. We've had okay. enough. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the decision my parents made back in the day as well. But then Seth came along a little bit of a surprise yeah. one as well. So you never yeah. know. <laughs> that's always a possibility. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, cool. That, that'll be interesting. We can talk about that as well. That transition you're talking about, cause I did, we did chat offline beforehand and we did mention how some sports people do find that transition a bit difficult and maybe we can get back to that a bit later. But I think, I normally get the show started off with my guests telling them, sorry, not telling them, telling something about themselves, a bit of your background um, and sort of, you know, where you came from, what you've achieved or what you did as a professional sports person. And then we can take it from there. Yeah, sure. Um, So I grew up on a small little farm uh, in a town called Bonnyvale, which not many people would have heard of, but it's about two hours outside of Cape Town. Um, and in the, in the sort of sports context, uh, grew up, uh, grew up like most young, um, male rugby players and I guess female rugby players now coming through and wanting to represent my country, um, you know, wanting to play for the Springboks. And remember as a young kid, uh, my uncle was, a played, played over a hundred games for, uh, for Western province, um. And uh, sort of supporting supporting Western Province, supporting the Springboks, and 
being very upset whenever the Springboks lost. I, I, I remember that quite clearly, that uh, whenever the Springboks lost, I was absolutely mortified. And um, and yeah, and then I, uh, when I was 12, I went off to boarding school uh, in Cape Town uh, at Bishops, obviously where you and I went together, uh, uh, attended together, um, and really enjoyed my time there. Um, by the time I finished at up at Bishops, I, I uh, was selected for the South African schools team, uh, rugby team, um, and then played in the Under-20 World Cup and uh, was selected for the Stormers when I was 19 years old. Um, and the sort of, I guess, the interesting thing around that was that I was selected on the wing um, by Rassi Erasmus um, at the time, despite being a, a loose forward. Um, and that created quite a lot of sort of interest um, probably more so than what it would have done if I was selected as a just in my normal position. But we had uh, we had Dwayne Vermeulen, Francois Lowe, and Skulk Berger <laughs> as, as loose forwards at the time, and I think Luke Watson was coming off the bench. So you know, there was no way in um, at that stage as a loose forward. Um, and then sort of five five games into uh, the Super Rugby Championship on the wing, um, I had a you know a pretty severe knee injury. Um, which then, ten years on, when I by the time I'd finished my career, that same injury kept me out for five of those ten years. You know, three operations wow. and just a really, really sort of debilitating injury. Um, and I guess that's what for me uh, makes positioning my rugby career quite difficult. In that there was all this early promise, um, you know, playing for South African uh, juniors and. Um, you know, and cap- captaining some of those teams and the provincial teams that I played in, uh, playing for the Stormers quite early on, um, and then having this injury, which just, you know, there's so many players that have big injuries, so you never want to blame anything on an injury. You know, a guy like, you look at a guy like Jean de Villiers, and he's had multiple mm. knee operations and shoulder operations, so you never want to blame anything on a knee injury. But I guess the point is that it makes it quite difficult to sort of pos- um, pos- position my career when I think back of it. Um, and you do always think, you know, what what could have been. Um, so so I I then left uh, to play for Bath for a season, um, and eventually ended up in Bristol, where I played, uh, you know, two two or three seasons for Bristol in the Championship. We got promoted to the to the Premiership, and then dropped down to the Championship again. And I was I was in and out of that team, you know. I never, I wouldn't say for most of that for most of my time in the UK, I wasn't a regular starter. So came off the bench most of the time um, and then finished my career, I guess, my rugby career at, at Cambridge University where um, I studied uh, for a master's in social innovation um, and absolutely loved that experience because, um, you know, at, when you go back to university rugby, you go back to the amateur version of the game um, and I just absolutely loved the, the game being all about you know winning a varsity match rather than earning an income or status or you know whatever else you play for when something is your job um, I think when I when I reflect on my career I think one of the things that for me was quite difficult is that um, when you do play the game and that, well, maybe for some people this is not the case but for me certainly it was a case whereby when you, when it became a job there was a dynamic that changed. You know, when you're earning, when you're playing for earnings and when you're playing for your next contract and then you get injured and then you're trying to, you know, you've, you've, you know, you're always sort of feeling like time's running out. 
Um, and I, and yeah, I, I guess for some people they don't, that maybe motivates them even more. But for me, going back to the sort of the amateur values of the game when I, when I arrived at Cambridge, um, and just with a bunch of, bunch of guys, young guys, uh, try, you know, just doing everything you can to win a varsity match. That is the only thing that matters. And, you know, the sort of, um, the, the rest, the rest of it, um, really, really didn't, didn't matter at all. And that, that was, that was, um, that was probably, you know, up there with one of my favorite rugby experiences in my career. Um, and, and just, uh, you know, as, as perfect a way that as I could have thought to transition out of rugby, um, you know, by still having that sort of rugby fix for a couple of years, studying on the side and working at the same time, because I, you know, I was studying part-time, um, I guess in a nutshell, that is, uh, that I would say that's my rugby career, um, from, okay. uh, from sort of my professional rugby career from sort of 19 until, uh, until I retired and, 28 and then eventually finished up at Cambridge at 30 years old. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a lot. There's a lot there, which is great. So we can maybe dive into a bit of the details along the way there. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot that I obviously know about your career, but I think I lost touch a bit once you left South Africa. Um, it was just a difficult patch. I think for, for my, what, what year did you leave South Africa? Just out of interest. 2012 so exactly 10 okay. years ago uh, this year okay yeah 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 i was busy with my own nonsense so i wouldn't have been able to keep in touch with you um you you you, you right. have struggled in any way i was playing on uh you know, sort of fields in, in the championship for most of the time that you know no, not televised and things like that so yeah okay okay cool um okay so let me go back let's go back to school days um i just want to quickly talk to you about something that happened when you were a bit younger and I just wanted to like I think it's mostly for myself I remember when you were like it must have been grade 9 or grade 10 you had a quite a serious injury or something related to your back if I remember yeah. correctly yeah so when I was 15 I had a um, I had a, a torn disc in my back um, which uh, it was it was interesting timing actually because it was it was two weeks before running in the 400 meter SA SA champs um as a 15 year old i'd been training very hard for that um and and training hard for hurdles also i you know enjoyed i enjoyed athletics growing up and two weeks before my back started getting quite sore and went to see a specialist and um i had a i had a tear in my in, the, in a disc in my lower back so the doctor said, "Look, it's not you're not going to do um, too much damage to it over the next two weeks, but then take a year off after that." So I took a year off of all sports um, from 15 to 16, um, and I've never had an issue with my back ever again. So, okay, so that wow. was, um, was that probably right? Was that was that tough to do? Because I know, I mean, as you mentioned there, you enjoyed your athletics, and I was thinking back to your school days. I mean, for those people that aren't from South Africa, South African, especially at boys' schools, it's very big on the sports. So most guys will play a summer sport and a winter sport, and sometimes you'll play two summer sports or two winter sports. So it's a very big part of, of like schoolboy life. And that's why I just wanted to ask with you, I mean, for you even more so, I mean, I remember you were great at athletics, you played cricket, you played rugby. 
So was it not tough to take that year off and like, you know, watch all your mates playing? Did it affect you in any way? Um, yeah, I, I would say it, I would say it, it definitely affected me at the time, especially because I think, um, I, I came from when I was 12, obviously I came from a tiny, that tiny little school, as I said, Bonnyvale to Bishops, which is, you know, one of the, one of the sort of biggest schools in South Africa, I'd say. Um, and went from speaking, primarily speaking Afrikaans to speaking English. And, um, and so sport very quickly became, you know, a big part of my identity. I couldn't really, I couldn't really ch chat that well to many, to people, but I could, I could play, I could contribute to sports teams. Um, so I think a lot of my early sort of friendships were, were also based in sport. You know, I was primarily friends with the guys who were good at sport. Um, and when you attach, you know, and yeah, and I think a lot of young kids who are good at sport do the same. You attach your identity to sport a little bit. Um, I could, I certainly couldn't touch my identity to girls or anything like that at the time. So, um, <laughs> I was about, I was about a head taller than everyone else. So uh, I, I looked a bit strange at, at parties and things. Um, I as, remember as when sure you, you, as I'm sure you'd remember. Yeah. I remember um, when you arrived, my dad, the first thing my dad said to me was like, because uh, he was obviously comparing you to Mike Nell, and Mike was obviously tall at the time. And Mike was about my dad's height, I think, when you arrived. And then you were taller than Mike. And I remember my dad, first. the first thing he said was, I can't believe there's somebody taller than Mike Nell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think from th from that aspect, it was difficult in that, you know, it was a year okay. without sport, without, um, you know, I, 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 got a, I got, obviously, the, the achievement in sport you know, gave me a lot of, um, yeah, identity and, um, and I guess, you know, positive feelings at the time. Um, but I think it was probably looking back, obviously a good thing in that, um, in that, uh, that's kind of the story of my rugby career to some extent is that I spent a lot of time on the sidelines and, um, and spent a lot of time, you know, I guess trying to, trying to recover from um, from injuries not being able to play supporting the people who are playing and uh, I don't I don't look back on that experience um, in, a, in a in a particularly negative way now I think it was it's all, it was all part of part of what what needed to happen okay perfect understandable um, it's very interesting that you spoke about that whole bonding process of sports and you couldn't really speak English as well as you could speak Afrikaans. I had a chat with Nono Pongolo. He was actually my first episode. And when he joined Bishops, I think he also joined in grade six, to be honest. Um, and he said that he couldn't speak almost any English. He could only speak closer. And he said the exact same thing about cricket. He said without cricket and hockey, he might have left Bishops because the sports made him feel included in the school. Yeah. Yeah, I think sport has an amazing power to do that. Um, in that, you know, the rules of the game are the same, and whatever language you play, whether you have friends, with it, you know, however you're feeling inside, um, there's there's consistency in that. And I think, you know, during during some of the more difficult times of my of my career and life, I guess, I could always go onto a rugby field and know what I'm in for. Even if I, even if I couldn't perform to the level that I wanted to perform at, there was, you know, in, in some ways there was always a sense of, um, I guess a sense of, you know, you know, you know, you know what it is, 
because you've been doing it since you were six years old and you know what the you know what the parameters are um so there are things on there that you can control and i guess um i guess that's probably what for a lot of kids growing up and for a lot of um yeah for a lot of people who play sport find that find that um whenever they do you know perform perform sports or play sports so whether whether you speak different languages whether you whether you um whether you like or dislike each other whether you're being bullied whatever the case whatever whatever the case may be on the sports field there's you know there are rules and there are regulations that mean that it's a level playing field um yeah and and i think a lot of people probably find security in that yeah 100% agreed and um when did you get your first like taste of of western province representation were you craven week under 13 would that have been the first time you represented the province or was it before then yeah craven week under 13 uh we played in pe and uh, i was playing fullback at the time um and yeah like again just uh, you know one of my one of my favorite experiences if i think back of my sports career because you know you'd grown up i'd grown up supporting western province and uh and now suddenly you get to put a, a jersey on with the blue and white hoops and it's just these are the moments that like i think f- that will just always live with you because it's just such an exhilarating feeling to know that you know this is achievable this is not these are not people these are these are human beings who um who are living out your dream but it's achievable if you um uh, if you work hard and if the cards fall right. Okay. Yeah. Great. And um, why you, at Bishops, you were playing eighth man at the time, or were you playing uh, in, in the back line? You were playing well, eighth I, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was in that year, straight after that Craven week, actually, that the, that Bishops moved me to, to number eight. I was playing, I was playing outside center. Yes. Um, I remember. I played a bit of sort of fly off when I was young, really young, maybe 10, 11. Um, then I moved to outside center for that Craven week. I played fullback and then they moved me to number eight, like straight after that, the next game, pretty much we're playing up in series, um, okay. uh, in, against a team there. And at Bishops, a lot, a lot, um, a lot of the game revolved at the time revolved around the number eight. You know, I think that's what Basil, you know, part of the Basil Bay, legacy is that you know connecting forwards in the backs and you know you know upskilling forwards to make sure they can also play with the ball and the, and the number eight uh to some extent was the link between the two i think um yeah. and brendan fogarty very much who's brendan fogarty was the under 13a coach at the time um very much i think coached in and probably still does in that basil bay um sort of mind frame or yeah you know from a strategic perspective so so absolutely loved playing number eight to bishops because you were basically like a backline player um and yeah. um and you know you were free to roam around and um and sort of attack attack wherever you thought was um or where, where, wherever your your instinct led you um and and yeah love loved it Again, you know, something okay. that changes when you play rugby professionally because it has to. You have to have more structure because yeah. defenses have become so good that you know, so you almost get told what to do. Um 
and where to run and um and while that is very important it sort of stifles it stifles creativity mm. you know so you've got a framework in professional rugby and within that there's a little bit of creativity for certain players but for the, for the rest it's just you run a line and if you can run that line really well there's a good chance you you know there's a chance you might make a line break but in terms of you know creativity and being able to um roam around and um and use instinct you know, that's not really that's not really so much doesn't really work when you're when you're having to be as structured as what you as what you do to win to win big um professional games with very very well structured defenses yeah do you think just out of interest um because it's always something from the outside in uh, as a spectator and i mean i i played rugby but never to the levels that you played but watching rugby you can actually see it you can see that it's very structured and that players have been told to do certain things and it does make sense. Do you not think that that freedom and creativity would have a place at international rugby or do you think it would be too disjointed and the other team would just take you to pieces because of the structure? I mean, why is it that it can't survive? What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason that, that everyone plays so structured because if you try and, if you try and play unstructured, there's just no way... There's just the defenses are too good, um, you know. So, I mean, and I don't think this is just in rugby. It's like systems systems drive the behaviors that you want, mm. um, you know. So, putting systems in place means you get consistency. I mean, it means that as a as a tactician, I guess, and as a coach, you get to influence what happens. So, you know, whether it's whether it's rugby or whether it's making McDonald's burgers. You know, McDonald's burger tastes the same in New Zealand as what it does in Greece and in the UK. And the reason it does is because they've put a system in place that that mm. pretty much eliminates human error. Um, you know, if you if you told every McDonald's to make a burger how they think is best, you wouldn't have any <laughs> consistency. And yeah, you'd have yeah. you'd have some burgers that are out of this world, but you'd have other burgers that that are not. And McDonald's wouldn't be what it is today without that consistency. Now, I'm not trying to. S- what I'm not trying to say is that rugby is <laughs> like making burgers or that it's like McDonald's, but the, the overriding point is that systems drive behaviors and systems systems drive consistency. So, you know, you have to have systems in place where 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 great coaches make a difference is that they allow players with a lot of flair, they allow them to impose themselves with systems. So if you can put someone, if you can use a system to put someone like Cheslin Colby one on one with someone, and at that point you then say to him, "Do what you want now. Do what you, you do know, best. Yeah. It's now up to you. I'm, I'm not going to tell you to step inside or step outside or fend or chip the ball over the top. At that point, use your instinct. But I think you know. So, so it's always a balance between systems and creativity, but it has to be. It has to be heavily system based because if everyone played like the barbarians you know you see how, how few times the barbarians ever ever really win um, yeah because they just they're not um they the, the you don't know what the player next to you is going to do and mm. on on a, on your on the day when the momentum's right and the chips fall right you might win by 30 points but more often than not you know, you're going to be put under pressure by a good defense and you're going to go into a shell, you're going to throw the ball around, you're going to throw an intercept pass. And, um, 
so yeah, I to to sort of sum it all up, I think systems are really important in rugby, and um, the days of running, you know, just running and passing and offloading, and you know, are uh, you'll get killed if you don't. Um, yeah, if you don't have sufficient systems in place. Yeah, I think you're right. I just wanted to. I always find it so fascinating to speak to people who've been in the system and then give their perspective because you know, oftentimes spectators will be sitting on the outside, and be like, "Oh, why don't they just?" play like they used to play at high school you know why don't they just throw the ball around um but those are the people that have never been on the on the rugby pitch in front of a structured defense that knows exactly what's being thrown at them um yeah yeah, i just guess the as the game got more and more professional that those systems had to come into place otherwise uh, i think you'd get killed yeah yeah sure you know like any like anything the game evolves and um and you have to evolve with it. Uh, so, you know, the, the the box kick is a classic example. People people always, you know, complain about a, how much the Springboks box kick. But you know, you have you have people dedicated to the statistics within within the Springboks, as an example, who and they will know exactly what their chances are of winning forty meters of territory if they put up a box kick or if they play. Um, and if you think about it, if you can, Makazolo Mapimpi, let's say if you can, if your chances are that you can get the ball back 55% of the time, um, you know, if you're going to run the ball, you're not going to win 40 meters 55% of the time um, with ball in hand and with their defense retreating. So, you know, yeah. I, I always do find it interesting how how us as spectators think we know, like have all the answers and that we know so much when we have, these smartest minds who have played this game for however long, studying it constantly, who know like you know who know what to do. They know like Rassi Erasmus, you know he knows how to pl- how to win a game of rugby. And it's and some sometimes we sometimes it doesn't work out, and sometimes you lose. But like that's the name of the game. The point is like they're 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 applying tactics that are. You're probably the best tactics rather than me sitting in my lounge. You know, I, I watch one game, <laughs> I watch one game a, a week and I, and I think that I know more than, uh, more than those guys. So um, it is, it is yeah. always quite interesting. Yeah. It's, I think maybe just the frustration at times, I get the sense that people maybe feel frustrated because they feel that the box can play with flair and, you know, the talent and the ability is there. But at the end of the day, what you said there is so important. You know, you've got a whole team of statisticians working with the co- coaching staff, working out what the best way to win is. And maybe that goes back to what you're talking about. The difference between the pro the pro game and the amateur game is at the end of the day, like the pros are there for results. Um, I mean, you follow a process and you're winning all the time. As the team, I mean, obviously, it would be nice if you played a beautiful brand of rugby. But if you're winning World Cups, but your rugby is not the most attractive rugby, I don't think it matters as much as if you're playing beautiful rugby, but you kept getting knocked out in the quarterfinals. So, yeah, yeah like I think, I think that's also the balance. You, you're not j- just there to play pretty rugby; you're there to win rugby games. Um, and that's the those guys' job is to make sure that you win the ga- as many games as possible um, and play to your strengths as well. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we and the Springboks score great tries. Like, yeah. if you look at the World Cup final, you know, um, 
Ches and Colby and uh, and Mapimpi. Like those were those were really good tries. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, I I yeah, we can talk about it for for days. But uh, <laughs> but I think you know, if when you're world champions and when you're when we've got the level of depth that we have now as as you know as the Springboks and looking going into the next World Cup, legitimately probably favourites up there with France. Um, it's, you're, we're in a great position. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, nice little tangent there. We can come back to to Mr. Costa yeah. talk about you a bit more. Um, so I wanted to find out from you. I remember that SA Schools um, tournament that you went to. Or so, sorry, the under twenties rugby World Cup tournament that you went to. Did you captain that side? No, no. I okay. um, that side was captained by I was uh, nineteen. Um, and okay. you know, so a year younger than the than the um, yes of course than the year group um, and that side was captained by a guy called GJ Van Felter ended up at Worcester um, and was actually a friend of mine um, and okay. uh, we played we lost to uh, we lost to England in the semi-finals and then beat Wales in the third to fourth place playoff and Wales and that team had Lee Halfpenny Sam Warburton um, Justin Tapuric so hell of Jeez. a side um, yeah. and uh and I think New Zealand ended up beating England in the final. Okay. Okay. And what was that like, your first time putting on like a representative jersey for your country? I mean, I know just maybe to give some context, I remember going to school with you and you always spoke about, you know, like where you where you saw yourself going one day and you always spoke so fondly of the Springboks and representing South Africa. So was that like a huge thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It was, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd played sort of the, uh, I'd played um, the age group stuff. So SS, the SS school stuff. Um, so I guess the first time I ever put a, put any Springbok jersey on was, um, was for SS schools in 2006. Okay. And yeah, again, you know, it's just, you, you grow up uh, idealizing this, um, you know, this team and these players. Um, and then uh, it's surreal when that happens, really, um, when you first put on put on a jersey like that and you almost, um, yeah, it, it brings something out of you that you, I guess, that you didn't really know you had um, from a, in terms of the adrenaline and what you're, I guess, what you're willing to put your body through versus, <laughs> versus in normal times. So, yeah, they were all great experiences. Um and um, and yeah, I'm very, very, ha- very happy and feel fortunate to have to have you know been able to 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 play to that you know even to that level. Um, but I'd say the over overarching feeling when I think back of my career is one of um, it's probably one of sort of disappointment and feeling like I didn't I didn't achieve what I set out to achieve, um, which was obviously okay. to play to play international rugby and um, it, it's. I sometimes think it's, I, th- I sometimes think it's quite interesting because you always hear about the great success stories, um, and uh, you always hear, you know, you always read books about people who um, who succeeded. And I guess for me, um, yeah, there's there are other aspects to my life that I um, that I that I would prefer to sort of define myself by. Um, and there is a, you know, I think there's a plan for me. That I that I'm very excited about, and I'm I'm really enjoying my career, 
um, in the corporate in the corporate world. But specifically, when I think back of rugby, I didn't achieve the goal that I that I intended to achieve. And and I think what makes it even more interesting, I guess, is that there's so many people around me achieved that dream. You know, Sia Kulisi and I came through at the same time at the Stormers. He was two years younger than me, but we were sort of that year that Skulk Berger got injured. Sia and I were kind of fighting for a position in the team, and then Sia got drafted in when Skulk went out, and he had a phenomenal season. Um, and if you think from that point onwards, sort of eight years down the line, Sia goes and wins a World Cup with the Springboks and becomes a global icon. Um, and you know, could not be more happy for for any human being because I think he is, you know, he is just one of the most humble, one of the most humble and great people that you'll ever come across. Um, I guess for me, having been through that, having, you know, been sat next to people like that in the change room who are now global icons through the sport that I tried to become a, um, you know, that I tr had, had dreams, dreams about. Um, and then seeing the Stormers win the Super Rugby final, which is just phenomenal. Um, and Dion Free, who I also played a lot with being man of the match and being drafted back into the Springboks. Um, it's a, you know, it's, I feel very fortunate to have had all these experiences. I think it's also, for me, it, it, it motivates you a lot to know that, to know what's possible. Um, and also to make sure that, you know, the next stage of my, of my own journey, that that is a, that is, that I achieve what I set out to achieve. Um, because I guess on the last one, I didn't. So, um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's life's interesting. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I actually was going to ask you a bit about those kinds of things. And um, I'm really stoked that you brought it up because I mean, yeah, for, just from, from the outside in again, like watching your development at school, I would have put good money on you becoming a springbok and, and achieving your dreams. Um, but I think, you know, I th it doesn't always work out the way that we think and you know maybe maybe there's something to that maybe there's a lesson to be learned in that I know it's tough to, to do it in the moment because um, you obviously feel disappointed and let let down and all those kinds of things but yeah as you said maybe you can draw motivation from there um, and I think sports was a big part of your life but maybe it's not you know, it's not the it's not the be all and end all of of our lives. At the end of the day, I'm sure there's other things that you've got lined up. Um, yeah. So in the bigger picture, maybe it won't be. It's not your last chapter. You know what I mean? There's more to come. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's yeah. What what lessons do you draw from it? What um, I guess um, I guess the important thing is that. You know, life life is brutal, and we hear a lot of the success stories, and we hear a lot of the um, yeah, we, we we you know we we constantly hear narratives of success, but like failure happens so much more often, and you know I think we need to equip people more to deal with failure because in the end of the day, like very few people become a Sia Kulisi or a Skulk Berger or a or a Dion Free, even um, you know, for, for them, even in in well, whether it's sport or business or whatever the case may be, you have more people who don't 
don't get you know achieve what they what they want to or set out to or um or who don't become springboks so you know how do we also cater for those people who don't um who don't necessarily um achieve success whatever you whatever the um parameters parameters or definitions of success might be and i guess the thing that for me has always um as that has always resonated that i've always tried to live by is that you know you are more than uh, your achievements and you're more than um you know you're you're more than a rugby player you're more than a businessman or whatever whatever you want to define yourself by and um and i guess um what I have really tried to do and I think what I've done well is to take the learnings from my experiences and to apply them in other areas of my life. So, um, you know, so within a relatively short space of time, I've been in the corporate world for four years now and literally came in and knew so little, didn't know what a balance sheet was or a P and I mean, I'd studied to be uh, an MBA. So I, I had the basics, but, um, I knew so little, and in and in a relatively short space of time, you know, in, in in four years, I've I've worked myself up to being a director in the company that I'm that I'm in, um, and I would say ninety percent of that has come from the learnings from sport, um, and taking taking what I can out of the failures that I had, uh, you know, in 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 my rugby, and also having a lot of motivation to, you know, I feel like I yeah I there's a I guess there's a there's a fire burning that wouldn't have burned as strong if I did achieve everything that I dream, dreamt of achieving in in rugby. You know, um, I, I definitely think that's that's something. It's 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 motivated me um, to 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 a very large extent. I think um, not achieving what I wanted to in sport. Um, and so one of the things that I was very lucky, um, very lucky throughout my career was that I was coached by seven coaches who who won who coached in world cup finals um so jake wow. white andy robinson who coached in 2003 um steve borthwick who coached england in 2019 and neil hatley um in that world cup final. and then obviously russi jock and matt proudfoot so those are the seven coaches seven coaches who who all had a pretty big influence in my career um and in my life i'd say um and I, if you can combine what I always think, if I can combine, you know, the good the skill set and the good um, practices of those seven coaches, you know, the the sky is the limit. Because in rugby, one of the things that you get is you get a lesson in leadership, and it is so brutal because every single week, you know, not only is are things so visible in that there's a video and everyone can see exactly what's so it's very visible, but it's also you know, you have to win a game every week. You fail and succeed every single week, and that really drives people to perform. Um, and it drives, and it's it's it is so tough. And I don't, I don't, I think sometimes people don't realize how, even the players themselves don't realize how tough that is until you come out of that and you realize that in business, people people take score every quarter. So it's like every three yeah. months, in most cases, every three months you sort of review your performance, and there's very little visibility. So it's hard to even tell what success, what's successful, and what's not. Whereas yeah. in sport, every week you either win the game or you don't. It's like it's as simple as that. It's black and white. Um, yeah. So, uh, so going through that, you know, going 
going through that rugby environment um, and that emphasis on performance and high performance and also being coached by some of the best coaches in the world. You know, I think, you know, Rassi is obviously up there. I think Steve Borthwick, by the time he finishes, will be will be known as the greatest coach, rugby coach of all time. Um, you know, he he joined at Bristol just for six weeks and had such a, had the biggest influence on me that any leader has ever had because I always believed that there was a better way of doing it. Um, and Steve came in and in six weeks kind of, um, I guess, you know, he confirmed to me everything that I believed was possible in terms of leadership and then transformed my view of your know, leadership and um, detail and, and if you look at his if you look at his career, I um I I I, I do say this to to a lot of people um, because I you know I'm such a big fan of his. But he started coaching Japan um, straight from playing, went on within 18 months to cause the biggest upset in the history of South of world rugby when they beat South Africa in the. Yeah. He was a forwards coach for that. He then joined Bristol, and I think in, within like six weeks turned our turned our season around, but then left for England. Um, and joined England. They went on an 18-match winning streak and equaled the world record. In that time, joined the Lions as their forwards coach, um, and they they drew to New Zealand in New Zealand. And this was known as the this this team, Kieran Reid, that won two world Kieran Reid, captaining the team, that won two World Cups in a row. At the time, they were seen as the best sporting team in the world ever. You know, yeah, um, like this. I don't know if there's stats. been a study about it, but there were stats about it. They were, they were spoken about as one of the great, great sporting teams, sporting teams in the world, not just rugby. And the Lions somehow managed to draw against them in New Zealand, which is like impossible in itself, even when you just have a normal yeah. New Zealand team. Um, and then he's joined, uh, and then they've they've lost in the final of the World Cup to South Africa. So went really close after the week before producing, again, probably one of the best rugby performances that, England have ever produced against New Zealand, and then yep. he's taken over at Leicester, where they were they were going to be relegated if Saracens weren't relegated because of the um, the breaches. Um, Leicester were going to be relegated, and they've just won the Premiership with Steve Borthwick <laughs> there. I think he's been there for a season, so it's like this guy, yeah. you know, he's the results speak for themselves. And I find I feel so grateful that I was able to learn from people like that. Um, and I guess if I could sort of sum up what I try and do in business is I try and add more visibility to performance metrics and, you know, performance in general, because I think when you add visibility that drives accountability, um, mm. I think, I think when you measure the right things, when you create the right atmosphere and culture that drives the right behaviors. And these are all things that I learned in sport that I'm now trying to refine in my own mind and trying to understand how does that fit into business because it is slightly different. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in my, in business, you don't, not everyone is hyper um, motivate, motivated. So you, that, you've got that yeah. to contend with in sport, you know, in most teams, everyone really wants to win. Like you don't, you don't become a professional rugby player if you don't have a, you know, a, a deep desire to, to win. So the, the kind of motivational thing is taken care of for a lot of these coaches in many ways, yeah. whereas in business, sometimes you've got to drag people along a bit. But um, yeah, to sort of 
to summarize all of that, I think even though my career itself, I you know was it was disappointing by by what I by what I strived for and what I set out to achieve. There's so many things I think that I that I can take from that that I that I can apply that will hopefully make the future better. Yeah. Well, that's also, you know, that's the thing about you being the person actually living your life on the inside. You've you've had all those experiences. You can talk about all those things. Whereas from the outside in, you know, people might say, "Oh, well, he didn't he didn't become a Springbok," and so you know, it's it's a pity and all those things. So I think some sometimes what you said earlier about not letting your achievements be the only thing that defines you. Um, it's so important that you've actually stepped back and you've looked at it from a big picture and there's actually a huge amount of value that you got out of that. Because, I mean, think about it this way. Had you not had all those experiences, who knows? Would like would you have been as successful in the last four years as as, as you have been? I mean, I'm probably going to go out on a limb and say most likely not. Um, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah, probably not. Um, but also, you know, I think there's uh, there's a lot to be said for the um the other aspects of life like one aspect of your life is achieving your goals and being successful in whatever career you pick but then there's like there's so much more to it you know the father that you are the integrity that you go about doing you know business um business or friendships or whatever the case may be the integrity with which you live your friendships you know i i I made so many great friends wherever I went, um, and it's now trying to balance children and a, 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 a busy career, and trying to make sure that I see those friends and that I can I can you know grow grow my friendships with them like this. <clears throat> you know, living living in a very capitalist society, which you know I'm very much a part of. I work in energy, so oil and gas and renewables. Um, I'm, I'm very much part of the capitalist world, but the capitalist world just focuses so much on the on the goal and the success and the um, the position, and you can get caught up in that, you know. So I could easily mm-hmm. have sunken into a into a mess after a failed rugby career by my by by you know as I always say by what I set out to achieve. I think if I set out to achieve to play for the Stormers, it's a successful career. But I set, but I set out to to play for the Springboks, so it's not a successful career. But then you think, like that's such a small part of the bigger scheme of things. And if 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 there's always only ever emphasis on, um, you know, position, status, success by such a narrow definition, then I think you know you, you're missing the point. Um, yeah. Because because in the end of the day, your life is. Your life is not um, being a Springbok rugby player, and your life your life is not being a CEO. Your life is how your wife greets you at the door, and your life is how you you know the the, the energy in your home in the morning when your kids wake up and, and you're playing tile rummy or um, you know, that's that's what your life is. The other yeah. stuff is what everyone else sees. Um, so. So I'm always trying to balance, you know, achieving what I what I like achieving my my um, my potential because I know the pain that comes with not achieving your potential because I've had that, 
So I guess my next challenge now is achieving my potential in in business and in um, you know in the corporate world, um, but with a massive caveat that there are things that are more important than that, including yeah. my children and my you know my marriage and um, my friendships and my family. Um, so it's it's one way you know one one often takes from the other. But uh, but I guess it's trying to get that balance right, which is the ever, which is the ever, ever challenging um, sort of part of 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 being a being um, being young and having a lot on your plate. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. I was listening to a very uh, fascinating podcast between a biologist, a guy called Manolis Kellis. I think he's at M- MIT. And he was speaking to like a machine learning AI guy who's got his own podcast called Lex Friedman. And they were having a similar kind of conversation talking about people often get stuck in the race, the rat race, and don't allow themselves the space and the time to think about the process. Like what are you actually, um, what are you doing in the moment to achieve sort of where you're setting out to go? And if you just focus on the end goal, you lose sight of all that beautiful stuff in the middle. And he was just saying, like, if you want to be successful, you should aim to be process or systems driven. Focus on what systems and processes create success and then ultimately success will come rather than sort of setting the goal and then just setting off balls to the wall and not not having the time to enjoy actually getting there. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, that's essentially what you were saying a bit there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, I think, I think it really is important to know where you're going. Um, you know, having a clear, having a clear, like, vision for what the goal is. I think that's the first step to any, any team achieving or any individual achieving what they want to achieve. Because, because in many ways, your behavior, your systems that you set up, your processes depend on what your goal is. If your goal True. is to make as much profit as possible, it's going to be different to, you know, having a goal whereby you want your employees to be as happy as possible, or if you, you know, or a mixture of the two. So, as a as a basic simple example, um, and the interesting thing on that on vision, right, is is what I'm seeing now with a lot of rugby clubs is they're making the goal something bigger than just winning rugby matches. Bristol's goal is to inspire the community through sport. You know, that's something I feel like is so powerful because it goes beyond just winning rugby matches and it goes, go, it, it, it becomes something bigger than yourself. Cape, uh, so the Stormers' goal, well, they, what, they, what they put on their gym wall at the start of the season was make Cape Town smile again. And, um, and, and so it becomes, as a player now, it becomes not about winning rugby matches, it becomes about serving your community. And I think that's mm. you know, just speaking, just on a bit of a tangent. Speaking about goals, that becomes quite powerful because now you know what you're trying to achieve, and and it becomes more than winning a game. It becomes also about like when I interact with people in the shopping center, like that's that's part of my job here, you know, as well as playing because, you know, how I interact with kids because these are the next Stormers players who are going to you know move the you know who are going to inspire communities, so. Yeah, so for me, absolutely, like the the goal and the vision is is really important. But then, exactly as you say, it's the process and the system 
that like that gets you that gets you there because in the end of the day be, it's it's about the behaviors of people that's every that's what every team effectively is trying to get right and every coach and every leader you're trying to get your team to behave in a way that's going to make the attainment of that goal more more likely um and yeah. i've th- this is another thing that i think i've had such good life lessons in going through sport because the behaviors you see when the team is like not successful when the team's not doing well versus the behaviors that you see when the team is doing well the behaviors that you see in a poor culture versus a great culture um and 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 even more importantly and more interestingly than than that the behaviors that poor cultures draw out of you versus good cultures so how, how i behaved in poor cultures where yeah i'd go sit and have coffees with guys and complain about the coaches you know and waste my time and waste everyone's time and just regurgitate a narrative about the coaches that is, um, you know, because you're not being picked for the team and you're sour and, you know, so you start behaving in a way that's, that's you know, that's not um, congruent to a successful organization. And then I compare that to the great cultures that I was a part of where I didn't do any of that. I just worked harder and I, you know, I, put effort into the, the relationships within within the team um so so I learned a huge amount about that in terms of uh, through that process um in terms of what systems what cultures what leaders drive what behaviors um and and also as a follower yeah you're not going to agree with everything that the leader is doing but that's not the point the point is it's more important to buy in because then you're more yeah. likely to succeed um, as a team. So how do you become a better follower in some ways? Obviously, like if, if you fundamentally disagree with the leader and where the team is going, you know, say something and be honest. But yeah, there's um, the one example I always think about is a mall. So if you think about a, well, for non, non-regular listeners, a mall is where you throw the ball into a line out, someone jumps, they catch it, and then you all group together and you try and push the other team over. There are like probably 30 ways to do a mall, you know, in terms of how you bind, in terms of the height, in terms of the positioning, in terms of the, you know, um, making sure that you don't get you don't get pulled down to the ground when you land. There's so many different ways to do it. Um, and this is the thing I always think of when I th- when I think about the role that people play within a team is like, who knows what the best out of those thirty ways is? Like, obviously there are better ways than worse ways, but if you could rank, if you could like, if you could, and this is impossible, if you could do the statistics on every mall that's ever been, and you could rank the best to the thirtieth best way, even if your team picks the sixth best way, as long as you all do it and you all buy into it, and you all are on board with what you're doing, you're so much more likely to succeed than if you know everyone picks their way and everyone does it slightly differently. So you know, sometimes, sometimes everyone doing it in a consistent way and believing in, believing in the plan, buying into the plan, is more important than the plan itself. 100%. Um, and as a follower, that's something that I've learned to you know, I, the leaders all the time do things, say things, have approaches that I don't, I think there's a better way to do it, but it's like the team's going to be so much better off if I just back the plan, believe in the plan, um, you know, uh, uh, communicate in a way that 
that where everyone else sees that I'm buying into the plan because having a bunch of people bought into the plan yeah is more important in most cases than the plan itself yeah um and obviously speaking about plans that are you know good plans may, they may not be the best plans but they're good plans um obviously if it's a really shitty plan then it's a different story but i mean if it's a decent yeah. plan executed yeah. well with everyone on board it's it's likely to succeed um so interesting that you bring that kind of stuff up because i've had very interesting experiences in business um look i don't want to name drop because i don't want to throw anyone under the bus but i've let's just say i've been in organizations where the where the environment hasn't been positive it was actually quite toxic and um the people before they were in the organization were corrupted in a way and changed by the organization because of the value structures and things like that and it was just it was so interesting to watch people change literally in front of you um over the course of you know three four months as the culture sort of started embedding itself into them yeah and like i even caught myself being negative and speaking negatively about certain people and certain things of the business and then i had the the opportunity to work elsewhere and it was literally the complete opposite just had a superb leadership team um and I believed and bought into what they were saying. And it wasn't always, as you said, it wasn't always the best thing, but because they had the buy-in of the people, the organization was just successful. Every like quarter we smashed, we smashed our targets. Um, and it was literally because everyone was buying into what they were selling. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was all mostly execution rather than the best execution. It was just excellent execution on a plan that they that they believed in and they got their staff to believe in as well. Yeah. So I think that's probably, if I could summarize my life passion, it's um, how do you get teams to perform better? Um, and how do you transform? Yeah. How do you transform performance um, through culture, through analysis, like knowing um, I, I really enjoy the analysis of, of business in particular. And I guess you can, you can analyze anything, but um you know, and then you know, putting systems in place, putting processes in place. Um, some yes, so there's a brutal part to it where you have to remove people who are not bought yep. into that, and that's the hard part about leadership. You know, I um, I I my my probably my best um, MBA master's module that I did um, was was on leadership, leadership in context, and I'll never forget the um, the lecturer on the first day got us all. Um, to uh to like on the first morning the first thing he, he asked us is tell me some you know things about leadership what is good what is good leadership and it was all the like we all you know, everyone named all the good stuff you know inclusion and um it's 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 all about uh, inspiration and uh, you know all, all of the like like fluffy nice lovely stuff about leadership and then he was like and then he immediately said like as soon as we were finished, he was like, there's nothing negative on you. There's nothing bad on you as such. There's nothing, you know, there's a brutal part to leadership, like firing people. Like sometimes, you know, you always have to, you always want to keep your integrity, but sometimes someone's not performing and th that has to, to be dealt with. Um, and, you know, you see so many times people just kind of hanging on, not, not, not rocking the boat. And again, from sport, every week you get dropped. So like, sometimes the you know the best 15 players get a chance to play the rest 
have to try and support the best 15 and I and I think again in in my in my career going forward the brutality of sometimes for 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 an individual you'll be better off working elsewhere where it's not going to be this you know this culture and this drive and this optimism and this positivity and everything that 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 I guess I believe makes a good team um that that's that's always the biggest challenge i guess um yeah so so yeah there was something i want i was there was something else that i was thinking of but i've i've forgotten i'm sure we'll come back to it no worries i'm sure it'll come back to you yeah i yeah. think um i've had the opportunity to do a bit of like management along the way and yeah the the, the biggest lesson that i took i was very fortunate that i had some some pretty good role models that i was working underneath um and the one thing that that they taught me was that you're not there also to always be everyone's friend. Like, and that for me was quite a difficult thing to do because I'm quite like a I'm a disagreeable person. Like, I'll stand up for what I believe in. I don't have a problem arguing with people, but I'm also quite like empathetic. Like, I don't really like to put people down or you know say not even nasty things. Just like if someone's not doing their job properly, I find it quite difficult to like step in and be like, look this x y and z um to do it in such a way that like is, is communicates the problems but without being an, an arsehole basically i've so to me that was a big challenge like how do i criticize but also then drive performance um down the road from the person how do i do it in such a way that they don't feel demotivated and those kind of things and you're know, like learning that you don't have to be everyone's friend um especially if you if you both are aligned on where the goal is and where, where you're going. And I think that's also the same in sports. Like, I mean, I played in rugby teams, cricket sides, where I wasn't good mates with the guys I was playing next to off the field. But when you're in it together on the field, um, yeah, like I'd give my, my body for the work standing next to me. Um, yeah, and I think to me that was like the most fascinating part about leading is sort of getting that balance right between friendship and business and getting stuff done um yeah and then also having to tread on people's feelings when necessary um i think now that i'm thinking about it i think the big difference is that in sports you often like everyone's bought in to what they're about to do you know if you if you're going into a rugby game you kind of know what you're getting yourself into whereas when you join a business maybe sometimes people don't necessarily know what they're getting themselves in, or maybe they're not committed into the vision. They're just, they're just there to get a salary and a paycheck. So they haven't bought in. Um, so when criticized, they take it personally because maybe they're not, they don't see themselves as part of like a big thing where they're headed to Whereas in the rugby side. If you get dropped or you get criticized, you understand that within the parameters of what you're trying to achieve, you, if you play badly, you, you're expecting the criticism, you're expecting to get dropped. Whereas, I don't know, in business, it's, it seems to be a little bit more personal. I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Um, yeah, I think I think you're spot on in that um, the parameters of success in sport are really clear. And the the what the team wants to achieve is, in most cases, very clear. So everyone knows when they turn up what they're in for. Um, there's a big... There's a big emphasis on performance because I think because of this, it's like every week you either win or you lose. Um, and this is, this is something that I actively try and like instill in the businesses that I've worked in is 
like clarify what the goal is um, and make success and failure as visible as possible. Um, and it's harder sometimes to do in business. Um, but, but to give you a practical example, we had a person who did invoicing in one of the businesses that I'm, um, that I, that I, that I ran, um, about two years ago. And the average time between when, when a technician returned offshore to when we got the invoice out was 47 days because they have to collect hotel invoices they have to collect hotel invoices and timesheets and all and if the hotel doesn't respond with the invoice number uh, with the invoice then you know you wait until they do respond and then maybe like a month goes by and you chase them again and because you have to put a pack together whenever you invoice um but anyway the details are not important it took 47 days from when from when you um from when the person returned that's insane and all we did was we started measuring this we started putting this up on a monthly basis. What is our average days between um, person returning to invoice? And it went down from uh, from uh, 47 days, whatever it was, to, to 13 days within a relatively <laughs> short space of time. Now, the difference is that now the person's behavior changed because instead of waiting for the hotel, they would phone the hotel every day until they get the invoice. They drive to the hotel to get it if they have that kind of thing. Um, and 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 what I the challenge that I that I that you always have to work through here is people feel like that's uh, either micromanagement or it's like oh they don't want this person now like they that was such a success it's like every week we get to celebrate well done look where we were last year we were at forty seven on average last year this year we're on thirteen on average next year we're on eight on average and that person suddenly they work. They, they, there's some meaning to their work because they're now not just sitting yep. there like processing invoices. They realize that they're part of a bigger team and that they're that they have an inf- impact on the bigger success of the business, which in this case is, you know, getting cash in quicker. Um, in some cases, it's a lot more difficult to to define things like in creative type, um, yeah, cre- creative type. Um, you know, jobs and roles and things, it can be a bit more difficult to sort of define the parameters of success. But, you know, this is for me, I guess, what I, yeah, what I really enjoy trying to implement within within businesses is for, really the difference between amateur rugby and professional rugby is this exact thing, is visibility of performance. So in amateur rugby, you know, when we were playing at school, you everyone would kind of watch and there's no stats done and it's like you see someone make a line break and score a try oh they had a great game but you you know you don't see the eight tackles they missed or the or every time they're on the floor it takes them 10 seconds to get up and the other team ends up scoring because so as an amateur player you're just kind of playing and you're enjoying it and that kind of thing then you then you go professional now they measure things so it's like they measure how quickly you get off the ground and suddenly now, whenever you make a tackle, your first thought is again okay, to get up off the ground. You got to go. And this is why. Yeah. This is why in professional rugby you have a wall of people in front of you because they're being measured. There's visibility of performance. Whereas in amateur, it's like in amateur, it's like you know you'll hit got hit a ruck for no reason just because you like, want to rest or <laughs> you're trying to <laughs> hurt <tired>. someone <laughs> because they just gave, gave you a club club the ruck before. Um, so for me, a big difference in amateur and professional in that kind of setting is this visibility of what performance is. Um, and that, and you go into businesses, and in most cases, you see there's so little visibility. 
all you do is you bring a bit of visibility to that. And suddenly now for their person processing invoices, there's something to strive for. And they get to be a hero yeah. of the month. And their, their work suddenly means something to them. So you know, you've got to frame these things in the right way. It's not a way to like, it's not a way to hit people over the head. It's a way to say, who's performing well and how do we reward them? Because then yeah. you, know, you draw everyone else to them. And when I, this leads me on to something else. When I spoke about Steve Borthwick earlier, one of the things from for Steve Borthwick that had such a big impact on me is that I feel like for a large part of my career, people would say, you know, you'd watch a video on the Monday and I'd be like, oh, we missed that tackle. And we, oh, no, you that, don't, um, uh, you missed that clean or you didn't clean that person out. You weren't low enough. You weren't low enough. You didn't tackle low enough. You didn't, you didn't drive your legs. You know, so much of the narrative was around that. Um, Steve Borthwick came in and it was like, you'd get a clip, you'd get clips from training through at like two, at like 2 a.m. And it would be five positive examples and two work ons. But it'll be like, you'd pick the one great tackle you made in training. It'd be like, great tackle. And you'd pick the one great clean you did, fantastic height on that clean. And for me, and maybe for a lot of players, they like wouldn't even have noticed this. But for me, this like this resonated with me so much because for so much of my career, I was told what not to do. But it's difficult to not do something. It's difficult to not tackle high, like too high, or it's difficult to not drive yeah. your legs in a tackle. Suddenly, now I had like, and even for the six week period that he was there, it was like, okay, well, I know how to tackle now. That's what, like that is what is expected of me. So I'm going to go and tackle like that every time. And that's, you know, that was something for me to focus on. It's not something to not do. It's something to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just I think, sorry, Nick, to, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. Like it's, uh, I just, I'll, I'll forget it if I don't say it now, but it's, it's so important because telling someone what to do, it's very specific. Whereas telling someone we're not, what not to do, it leaves the door open. Okay. Well then does he want me five centimeters lower? Is it 10 centimeters? Is it, do I, you know what I mean? It, it leaves the door open. Whereas if it's like, that's what I want, do that. It's so much more specific. So it's so much more easy for the person to then be like, okay, I know exactly what you want. Um, you're not like, there's no guessing room. It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah, like, I, I just so much I thought it was easier to, so important. Yeah. It's so much easier to like visualize. It's like the whole thing about if someone says to you, don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about, like, you're going to think about the pink elephant. Yeah. <laughs> you can't not do something, you know? So, um, so Steve Borthwick really sort of transformed that for me um, in that, you know, reward good behavior, reward good behaviors, because then people are going to strive for good to do those behaviors rather than like, of course, there's times where you have to say, like, guys, we need to stop kicking the ball out in the full or whatever the case may be in business. There, there are, of course, times where you have to. But but when so so now in my role, I have the 10 global businesses that I that I've, you know, visit and try and, you know, improve the, the efficiency and the performance of those businesses. And everywhere from America to the UK to the Middle East to Norway, so different cultures, different you know, evolutions in terms of the business, slightly different products, different leadership styles. And the one thing that I always come back to when I when I look around, you see good practices, you see average practices, you see poor practices, but I always try and like lead with the positive. I, I always try and not say to the nine who are not doing it well, you're not doing it well, you should do it like this. Always try and say, what's the one that's doing it phenomenally well? Okay, can we do it more like this? 
because this because for you know for these reasons um yeah so so yeah i mean i i guess what 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 it keeps coming back to is that um i for 10 years in my professional um career it was tough and it was um you know there were there were some lonely times and um there was a lot of disappointment and uh you know um rejection when you don't get selected and you've got your family coming to watch and fear of failure because you know and i'd remember lying lying in bed in the morning and it's raining outside my knee is like throbbing thinking how am i going to get through this day because you know and i've got a you know my contract runs out at the end of the year how do i how am i going to do this um you know but but and there was all of that and you know not achieving your dreams and not and and seeing other people achieve great things which you know you're 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 so happy for them um and it it still leaves a sense of like what could have been if things were different um yeah, but it's sweet what i would yeah but what i would say is that um you know for anyone who goes through a failure or a, or doesn't achieve something is like what can you learn from it that's going to make you better next time around like that's all that yeah. really you can you can focus on and i think up until this point i I, I would say, you know, I'm I'm on a good path in terms of that with my with the career that I'm on now in terms of taking those learnings, um, taking the pain from it and turning it into something positive through motivation and um, and uh, and and yeah, look, you know, looking forward to what yeah you know, how I can how I can better influence and serve people in the next uh, phase of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's epic. I think um I was reading I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Uh I think it was Extreme Ownership. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about the author, a guy called Jocko Willink. He's like a former yes. Navy SEAL. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I've seen, and I've seen he was ex- explaining about like the SEAL teams and he had a situation where I want to get this right. I think basically in the SEAL teams they do like that heavy physical training before they actually get selected. Um, as part of their uh, process of, of selection. So he was just saying that there was a situation where the one boat crew was winning everything. So um, in the SEALs, they get split by height because they have to do like boat lifts and things. And the guys obviously have to be similar height to be able to hoist the boats and stuff. And he was just saying that the winning team, he, his argument was the winning side, or the winning winning squad was, 90 or 80 percent of it was leadership and the other 20 percent was like the physical attributes of the team and um he swapped the worst leader into the best into the best boat crew and he took the leader of the boat crew that was completely dominating and he put it on with the with the worst guys and i think within like a couple of rounds of drills the 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 squad that was the worst the crew that was the worst was consistently winning again and he was just saying that like just pure leadership stuff um like sort of optimizing leadership changing the narrative of that boat crew um and the guy that was in the worst crew the leader he his crew came second overall at the end of all the drills and basically he was trying to sort of imprint the fact that you can have the best team in the world but if you don't have the leadership right you get like it doesn't really matter much and I think like um, what you're saying about uh, going to different places and different culture and different things like that, I think I believe that there's, there's an essence to leadership that 
sort of transcends culture, transcends uh, industries and those kinds of things. And I just think it's it's fascinating that you are drawn to that kind of thing because I think from the outside in, you've always seemed to be like a natural leader. Like you've obviously held leadership roles and and had experience with it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating that that's almost the common thread tying your whole life together rather than the rugby, if you know what I mean. Like that leadership aspect might actually be your calling and rugby might just have been a part of that journey. Yeah, well, that's how, that's that's how I choose to see it, whether um, <laughs> whether it is or not. But you know, you always hear people say things happen for a reason. Um, like I think, I think, I think you make the reason. You make yeah. the reason in how you react to things. You you, you choose yeah. whether you know you you choose whether things had a reason or not. Um, uh, but it's but it's interesting when you talk about leadership and. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm very interested in is kind of the credibility of leaders also. You know, what gives leaders credibility? Because that's really important. If the leader doesn't have any credit, if the leader doesn't have credibility with their, their people or their followers, um, it becomes very difficult to sort of mobilize a group of people to do anything um, that is uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, you know, high performance is always uncomfortable. There's always like yeah. if if you're if you if you're feeling chilled and like relaxed and stoked you know completely stoked at work it probably means you're not pushing you're not pushing or being pushed as hard as what you could be because yeah. it's, it's it's sort of that zone just outside your comfort zone is where you grow and push and and that that is what rugby is every week it's like you're being pushed because there's another 15 guys or 23 guys or or girls depending on whether you play uh, men, men or uh, women's rugby um, who want what you want and they're coming n- next week to get it and they're working for that you know so yeah so constantly interested in how do you how do you create that more of that kind of environment within within the business yeah. setting um, and to get back to the credibility thing I actually um, I had a really interesting thesis um thesis topic that i wrote uh for my mba for bath um because i had like good access to players who i'd played with in the springbok team um i did a i did some thesis research um on what changed from 2016 to 2019 when rassi rasmus took over what changed from a leadership perspective, what did he change that meant that we went from losing by 50 points to the All Blacks and by 30 points to Ireland to winning the World Cup the following year? Like, there must be something fundamentally that was different because it was broadly the same players. So I was really interested in that. Um, and I thought that, you know, I'd have an interesting angle with some of the players that I knew and that I could um, interview. And I, I can't say the players, and I and will never say the players who were who were interviewed um because um because of confidentiality. Um but it was really interesting. The first thing is no one ever said anything bad about um you know Alistair Kutsia. So this is not about that. Um and I you know I played under Alistair and Alistair's a lovely guy. So again, the emphasis here was not on what did Alistair Kutsia do wrong in any way. It was, you know, what what did Rusty specifically change that meant that mm-hmm. the players responded in the way that they did and that we ended up winning a World Cup? And um, and there were three things really that came out of it. Um, 
The first was from every single player. They said these three things when I did the, the coding. Um, attention to detail. So Russi, like, and Jarkni now, but I know how much attention to detail they go into. Um, and, you know, whereby you would know exactly, um, like, you would know they've done their homework. If they say something, and, and back to the credibility thing, how does a leader get credibility? Something that I've seen is that a lot of these, a lot of great leaders get credibility through attention to detail. People know that when they speak, they've done their homework. They understand, you know, in most cases, they've got a lot of experience. But even when people, when coaches don't necessarily or, or leaders don't have a lot of experience, you know, from an attention to detail perspective, um, that's where they get credibility. Yeah. Um, the second thing was clarity. So, um, I know exactly what my job is. I know what I need to do to win to win this game or to win this World Cup or to be, you know, for the team to be successful. Um, so, so down down to the actual pitch, it's like on the field itself in terms of the tactics and the strategy, but also off the field. I know what's expected of me. Um, and the third one was transparency. So I know that this is no, you know, everyone's watched the documentary and stuff and. There's a lot of uh, there's been a lot written about this, but Rassi on things like race and um, and transform uh, racial transformation and that kind of thing has been really open and really transparent, which I believe is different to how things were handled before, whereby it was mm -hmm. this sort of elephant in the room. Yeah. So, um, and uh, and then the other thing which players didn't mention. But which became quite apparent throughout um, throughout everything else I've watched and observed is is uh, like inclusion, diversity, and inclusion. Like for the first time, a lot of those players could sing before a game, and or bef you know could sing and express themselves in that way. With Sia Kulisi becoming captain, you know, suddenly now a bunch of players who might not have felt as included in everything as what they. Um, as what they do now felt very included. So if you, if you take those four things, um, you know, and this is a, this is what, this was a thesis study. So I kind of, I always, I guess, go back to those four things, certainly as fundamentals for me as a leader, it's like attention to detail, no, no, like do the analysis and know where we're good, where we're not good, where we need to prove what the stats are that make a big difference. And that's a lot, sometimes a lot easier probably to do in business than in, than in sport. Um, because that gives you credibility as a leader in, in many cases. Um, and the second one, uh, attention to detail. Sorry, the first one's attention to detail. The second one was um, clarity, clarity of role. Make it clear for people what success is, what they need to do, um, you know, what their job is within the team. Transparency, speaking openly, speaking honestly, you know, build so much integrity when you know that, people are being transparent and you know what's going on. There are no hidden agendas. Um, and the fourth one, inclusion, including people, you know, including everyone in the team, whether they're, you know, regardless of position, race, gender, um, anything else, make sure everyone feels included. And I, I feel like you've got four things there that are going to unlock potential in, in any team, yeah. whether it's in, and in any sector, in any industry, and in any, um, in any country. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I like feel very grateful for, um, you know, for having these experiences and, uh, and for kind of growing up in the world of sport. I sometimes feel like I lost 10 years in business where I could have learned a lot. Um, 
because I do, I, I, I am catching up now when it comes to the detail, the corporate, corporate stuff. Yeah. But then you think like from a leadership perspective, there couldn't be a better, uh, um, better learning academy than than through sport through any sport really yeah. um, and rugby particularly because it is um it's uh it's physically brutal and it's um yeah mentally tough as well so yeah yeah i agree with you and i think um the only thing i'd add to that list of four is i'd just in my personal experience is accountability like i think as a leader you have to be accountable um not only to yourself but to your team as well like if your team I've seen so many times in my personal experience where if a team is not doing well, the leader turns around and is like, oh, yeah, but this person's not doing this and this person. It's your job as a leader to make sure that the person is doing that. Um, yeah. Your your job is, you know, uh, is to is to take that on your back as a leader. I, I just, I found that sometimes in leadership roles, people are very quick to criticize the, their own team rather than saying, actually, you know what, maybe it's my leadership that's not getting the best out of these guys. There's something that I can change about my approach. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I think I'd add to that list. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even beyond sport, like you talk about the extreme ownership book. I know that from yeah. from what I've heard, it's like take ownership and accountability for everything, not yeah. just like… Tactic. Yeah, and um, there's so much to be said for that um, because… What you see it the most is like marriages. It's like everyone always blames their partner, but like if everyone's blaming, <laughs> if everyone's blaming their partner, <laughs> so, someone's not taking responsibility or accountability. So, yeah. yeah, as a general rule, absolutely, as you say, as a leader, as a father, as a as a parent, uh, as a <laughs> father and a parent, as a <laughs> as a leader, as a parent, as a husband, as a friend. You know, yeah. you're you're just so it's much big. better off taking responsibility, even if it's not like, and and you know, fixing what you can because, um, yeah. because at the end of the day, you know, you can't control what others do. So exactly. So yeah, yeah. I, I fully I fully agree with your sentiments on that. Is there anything else that you'd like to like to round up on? I I normally ask stuff about like regret at the end of the show, but I think you spoke quite deeply about your your feelings of disappointment with your career and things like that. So I don't think it's necessary to, to go into that. Um, but if there's anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up, um, yeah, go for it. No, no, I think I'm happy with, uh, yeah, it's been really nice chat Stace. Thanks for, um, yeah. Thanks for sort of putting the time out and, uh, also giving me an opportunity to, um, yeah, to kind of process it all because you don't, you know, you don't, you don't really process it in, uh, unless you unless you chat about it all. So it's it's no, it's it's all um, it's all great. It's so interesting what you said about that whole processing thing. You are literally I'm trying to think how many people. I think almost every guest has said exactly that that you don't think about your life oftentimes like that, and you don't talk about these things. And when you actually do, it's actually it's almost like cathartic in a way. Like um, a lot of people, especially the sports people that are, that are at, that have finished their careers and then are looking back and reflecting, um, yeah, they've they've all said roughly the same thing, which is is very interesting to me. There's there's a lot of common themes that run between um, sports people, which I find fascinating. And I th- one of the things I'm thinking of doing is actually making an episode, maybe just 
of myself, a very short one, to c- try and tie those common themes together um, and what I've learned from from various people that I've spoken to. Um, yeah, but yeah, again, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I just love connecting with people that I haven't spoken to in a while. And we must definitely stay in touch because I'd love to maybe in a year's time or whatever it is, have you back on and see how things are, what's changed, or what more you've learned and all those kinds of things. That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, let me know. Cheers. I'll, gonna, I'll, I'll end it now. Good stuff. Thanks, man. Take good care. To those of you who are still with me, I appreciate your support. Here's a quick recap on how to build credibility as a leader. For a leader to gain the trust of their team, they have to, one, pay attention to detail. Two, have clarity about the outcomes expected of the team. Three, they need to be transparent with their team members. Four, teams need to be inclusive of all their members. And five, you need to take ownership and accountability of all the work your team does, whether you succeed or fail. If you haven't already, please join me on Facebook. I'm building a community that shares actionable advice to help you overcome life's obstacles. I've added a link to the group in the show notes remember to take action apply what you took away from this episode to improve your life remember to tune in next week for some more practical advice and until then keep well